Hello and welcome to the Pediatric Anesthesia Journal's Featured Article of the Month podcast for April 2023. These monthly podcasts are published on the journal's website and you can also subscribe to them via iTunes, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Dr. Nioru Vithrana. This month's featured article is on perioperative intravenous lidocaine use in children, which features in the May edition of Pediatric Anesthesia. I'm joined by authors Dr. Chloe Heath and Justin Hee from the Department of Anesthesia and Pain Medicine at the Perth Children's Hospital. It's a delight to have some colleague Australian authors join the chat today. Thank you for inviting us and we're very excited to be here. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we work, the Wajak Noongar people. would also like to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Thank you, Justin, for that lovely acknowledgement of country. First things first, I think we're all going to be a bit more comfortable referring to it as lignocaine, and we'll get the hard part out of the way. For those of us whose primary exam was a while ago, can you give an explanation on the mechanism of action of intravenous lignocaine for systemic analgesia? So we know that inflammation, tissue injury and nerve injury all contribute to post-op pain. And lignocaine, an amide local anaesthetic, has antineuropathic, antihyperalgesic and anti-inflammatory actions. Multiple molecular mechanisms are responsible for these effects, and that's related to lignocaine's interaction with nearly all ion channels to some extent, as well as interactions with intracellular second messenger pathways. So the key receptors and pathways are the voltage-gated sodium channels, the NMDA receptors, muscarinic receptors and G-protein-coupled receptors. The sodium channels are a key player in the nociceptive signaling and they're expressed in the peripheral terminals of sensory neurons within the dorsal root ganglion and on sensory afferents in the spinal cord. They're also found in trigeminal and sympathetic ganglion neurons as well as visceral sensory neurons. So essentially through inhibition of these channels, you get inhibition of impulse generation from the nerve fibres and subsequent signalling transmissions to and within the central nervous system. So essentially you get ectopic discharges that are silenced as well and modulation of inhibitory and excitatory neurotransmission. The anti-inflammatory effects are thought to be maybe more a cumulative effect from multiple receptor effects. And then the other important thing is regarding length of action. The half-life of lignocaine is 90 to 120 minutes. However, the analgesic benefit of infusions lasts much longer than the cessation of the infusion. And that's thought to be due to a reduction in the release of inflammatory cytokines and complement, which thereby reduces the peripheral and central sensitization and modulates pain wind-up. We see a lot of use of IV lignocaine in adults, but not so much in paediatrics. Why is that? Intravenous lignocaine is an area of increasing evidence in adults, but this is still developing in paediatric anaesthesia. In our search strategy from the year 2000 onwards, we reviewed 122 abstracts and after applying our inclusion criteria, we included 10 studies in our review. For most of these, the quality of evidence was good, but all studies were limited by being single-centred and small in sample size. Thus, they all had a high risk of bias and insufficient numbers to be entirely reassured of side effects within this population. As you mentioned, in contrast to adults, there are no available meta-analyses or systematic reviews available in the paediatric population. Can you comment on some of the studies that looked at perioperative analgesia? 
So Justin's obviously outlined some of the limitations with the paediatric evidence. Um, and whilst we don't have those meta-analyses and systematic reviews, in the paediatric sphere, the clinical benefits of perioperative intravenous lidocaine have been demonstrated in smaller individual studies. In fact, this dates back to 2000 when the first reports of intravenous lidocaine use were written. In terms of our included studies, we had eight which scored good or very good for quality of evidence of which four of those looked at perioperative analgesia as a primary outcome and they were conducted as randomised control studies. So I thought I'd focus mostly on the findings from these and just wanted to reiterate what Justin's mentioned that they were single centre and small sample sizes. So in 2013, LDB and colleagues did a RCT in kids aged one to six and they looked at major abdominal surgery comparing placebo to intravenous lidocaine Investigators found a statistically significant reduction in mean post-op fentanyl consumption within the first 48 hours, but that wasn't reflected in pain scores, which is of note from a clinical significance point of view. In 2019, Lee and colleagues also did a, a double-blinded RCT. However, in this instance, they compared intravenous lidocaine to placebo in kids aged six months to six years in laparoscopic inguinal hernia repair. They had a slightly reduced bolus dose as part of their regime and they found that there was no difference in the amount of rescue analgesia but flat scores in terms of pain ratings were lower in the intravenous lidocaine group. In 2020, another study was done as a double-blinded RCT which compared intravenous lidocaine to placebo in multi-level spinal surgery in 8 to 15-year-olds. And investigators found reduced post-op morphine consumption for up to 48 hours with the greatest effect in the first 24 hours, as well as reduced post-operative pain intensity. And then finally, the last one I would wanted to mention was in 2021 by Kaczynski and colleagues. And this was a single centre, single mast RCT in kids undergoing laparoscopic appendicectomies. And in this instance, investigators found that there was no difference in post-operative opioid consumption. So I guess the reason I brought up these particular studies as well is that they highlight there's variable evidence for reduction in post-operative opioid and pain scores in the context of the perioperative lidocaine use. However, varied dose regimes and duration of infusions, variable outcome measures, and the fact that no two of these studies examined similar patient populations does make it difficult to compare and confirm the outcomes. Great. How about anesthesia requirements and the stress response? Two studies looked into anesthesia requirements. One in paediatric colonoscopies, which compared placebo with a 1.5 milligram per kilo bolus and 2 milligrams per kilo per hour lindocaine infusion. This demonstrated a lower total mean dose of propofol and sufentanil. Another study looked at intravenous lignocaine at a 1.5 milligram per kilo bolus and 1 milligram per kilo per hour in 22 patients undergoing multi-level spinal surgery. And this demonstrated a 15% lower mean end tidal sevofluorine concentration required to maintain intraoperative hemodynamic stability and depth of anesthesia monitors between 40 and 60 when compared to the control group. In regards to stress response, an abdominal surgery group demonstrated a statistically significant difference in serum cortisol levels in a lignocaine infusion group at intubation and extubation. Additionally, in a group of spinal surgery patients, 
pro-inflammatory mediators were reduced in the lignocaine group compared to controls, again demonstrating its potential anti-inflammatory actions. And are there any other effects that have been looked at in regards to IV lignocaine use? So of the paediatric studies we found, outcomes studied included length of stay, return of bowel function, and rates of postoperative vomiting in addition to those that Justin's discussed. So studies that assessed length of stay demonstrated mixed results with a reduction seen in those undergoing open abdominal procedures, but not in the laparoscopic group. In two other groups, the length of stay in the lignocaine groups for those undergoing multi-level posterior spinal fusion surgery was not shortened. Regarding GI function in laparoscopic and open major abdominal surgery, the return of bowel function was assessed and its activity was demonstrated to return earlier in the intravenous lignocaine groups. This could perhaps be related to the reduction in mean postoperative opioid consumption, but obviously can't confirm that. In spinal surgery, there's been mixed data in regards to return of gastrointestinal function and time to diet with only some groups concluding reduced nausea and faster introduction to diet in the lignocaine groups. One of the studies in our review specifically looked at postoperative vomiting in elective tonsillectomy patients comparing an intravenous lignocaine group to placebo and these investigators demonstrated a 21% absolute and a 68% relative risk reduction in postoperative vomiting. Nausea was not studied um, as it was deemed too difficult to assess in children. Reported benefits of intravenous lignocaine beyond what we've discussed include attenuation of airway reactivity and outside the operating theatre in the treatment of paediatric opioid refractory cancer pain, headaches and neuropathic pain states. However, these are outside the scope of what we specifically looked at, so I can't really comment any further on those. What are the pharmacokinetics and dosing of IV lignocaine in children? About 90% of lignocaine undergoes hepatic elimination by the cytochrome P450 system, and less than 10% is excreted renally unchanged. There may be age-related changes in the pharmacokinetics, but generally speaking, children older than six months appear to distribute and eliminate intravenous lignocaine in the same manner as adults, and therefore the applicability of a weight-based dosing in healthy children appears reasonable. Due to an increase in absolute volume distribution as a result of high body weight, loading doses should be calculated based on total body weight and continuous infusions based on ideal body weight. The regimens reported in the paediatric studies are similar to adults, from 1 to 1.5 mg per kilo bolus, with the subsequent infusion rates ranging from 1.5 to 2 mg per kilo per hour. In the few paediatric studies which measured serum levels, these ranged between 1 to 4 micrograms per mil in dosing schedules up to 1.5 mg per kilo bolus and 2 mg per kilo per hour infusions suggesting that these higher dosing regimes are unlikely to lead to toxic levels in healthy paediatric patients without comorbidities. It is thought that lignocaine serum levels at 1 to 2 micrograms per mil will effectively impact postoperative pain. Of note, in the absence of a loading dose, it takes more than 60 minutes and up, and shown up to 8 hours to achieve a therapeutic plasma steady state. The ideal duration of infusion for optimal effect remains unknown, but the intraoperative period is probably the most important in this setting in regards to analgesia, 
with post-operative continuation usually dependent on monitoring resources in individual institutions. What are some of the adverse effects with IV lignocaine that have been described in children? So with respect to the paediatric population, safety data remains limited. And as I've mentioned, the available studies are single centre with small sample size, and therefore we have insufficient numbers to be reassured about side effects in the population. But acknowledging this, based on the evidence we do have, the dose ranges studied in the paediatric population have not been associated with serious side effects, and current data suggests perioperative intravenous lignocaine seems well tolerated in this subgroup of paediatric surgical patients. So one study specifically looked at the incidence of adverse effects related to perioperative intravenous lignocaine for analgesia in spinal, orthopaedic and urology patients. In these patients, no bolus was given and infusions, of which 80% were started intraoperatively, were run between 0.8 to 1.2 mg per kilo per hour for a mean duration of 30 hours. Of the 50 patients, 24% had adverse effects which were primarily minor neurological symptoms, including limb paresthesia and visual disturbances. The average timed onset of these was 16 hours. And of note, of those that were tested, none had levels over five marks per mil, which is the documented kind of safe range. The symptoms were all deemed to be mild and quick resolution was based on either cessation or dose reduction. In another study which compared intravenous lignocaine to placebo in multi-level spinal surgery, a 1.5 mg per kilo bolus followed by 1 mg per kilo per hour was used until 6 hours post-op with a mean operation time of 260 minutes and the only adverse effects of lignocaine observed were transient skin sensory disturbances. None of the other paediatric studies included in our review reported signs of serious side effects during or in the 24 hours following administration. The other evidence we have comes from intravenous lignocaine use in cancer patients with opioid refractory pain. So in this body of evidence, again, the only documented side effects of intravenous lignocaine infusions are mild neurological symptoms. And in a cohort of 50 patients receiving a regime with a mean starting rate of 0.8 mg per kilo per hour for up to 30 hours, less than one quarter were associated with adverse effects. And in all of these cases but one, serum levels again were less than five mites per mil. Discontinuation or reduction of dosing resulted in resolution of all adverse effects. Of note, in contrast, findings which suggest, so these findings essentially suggest that a longer infusion time may be associated with the incidence of adverse effects, but other study cohorts have had conflicting results. So, Heterogeneous findings highlight that we do need rigorous dosing studies, um, particularly given no definitive dose concentration relationship exists between lignocaine infusions and resultant plasma levels. And following on from that, how about local anaesthetic toxicity and the clinical significance in paediatrics? So local anaesthetic toxicity has a very low incidence with less than 100 reported cases in the last 30 years. And the data that we have comes from adults. So all we can do essentially is extrapolate from this regarding our paediatric practice. Most of the data we have regarding lignocaine is sourced from its use as an antiarrhythmic with plasma concentrations between 1.4 mics per mil and 6 mics per mil considered safe. Lignocaine specifically is has a more favourable ratio compared with other local anaesthetics, 
demonstrated by the CC to CNS ratio we pro probably all remember from our primary exam. Major neurotoxicity is not reported to occur below levels of 15 mics per mil and cardiotoxicity at 21 mics per mil. However, that's not always the case with a spectrum of presentation and it's prudent to note that intraoperatively we might remove the signs of central nervous system toxicity and cardiac toxicity may be the first warning sign of local anaesthetic toxicity. So also of note, risk of local anaesthetic toxicity or other adverse events is higher in the context of bolus dosing, which is standard practice prior to commencing lignocaine infusions, given the steady state pharmacokinetics Justin touched on. Are there any other practical considerations in using IV lignocaine therapy? As there are no paediatric-specific guidelines, most recommendations are sourced from adult literature. These suggestions are for when intravenous lignocaine is used outside of the theatre setting and include continuous cardiac monitoring, non-invasive blood pressure monitoring and pulse oximetry. Resuscitative and local anaesthetic systemic toxicity equipment should be readily available. This is particularly pertinent for those who are at increased risk of toxicity or, as mentioned, those unable to be clinically monitored or able to self-report the initial subtle neurological signs. These special populations include those with cardiac, hepatic or renal dysfunction and those who are deeply sedated and, particularly in our population, those who have a wide variability in developmental stages and limited capacity to communicate. Intravenous lignocaine should be used with particular caution in this cohort or alternative strategies should be sought. Neonates is a population worth mentioning as these patients have immature metabolic clearance and are at increased risk of drug and metabolite accumulation. Furthermore, the alpha-1 acyglycoprotein fraction is lower in neonates and infants, which results in a comparatively higher unbound fraction of drug and an increased elimination half-life and thus increased risk of accumulation with infusions. Based on what you found in your literature review, what's your overall impression of IV lignocaine and how would you introduce it into your practice if you did so? So my overall impression is that clearly larger scale trials inclusive of safety data and a particular focus on paediatric pharmacokinetics are warranted. However, the data we have has demonstrated potential positive effects of perioperative intravenous lignocaine, and lignocaine appears to be well tolerated with benefits including improved pain, reduced postoperative opioid use, sparing of anesthesia agents, enhanced gastrointestinal function, and stress response attenuation with a variable degree of benefit. Regarding introducing to my own practice, my take-homes are that based on the available evidence and in those patients where regional or neuraxial analgesia is not appropriate, the use of perioperative intravenous lignocaine in paediatric patients undergoing open abdominal surgery and spinal surgery appears to be reasonable over two years of age without comorbid disease if it's used as the sole anaesthetic intervention. I would dose at 1.5 mg per kilo bolus on induction followed by one mg per kilo per hour for the interoperative period only. Thank you for joining me today to talk about how lignocaine can be used for effects beyond just as a local anaesthetic. 
Thank you so much for joining Justin and Chloe and to your team for all their hard work on publishing this excellent review article. This wraps up our featured article of the month podcast for April 2023. The article will be available for free on the journal's website soon. Follow us on Twitter at PD Anesthesia. Please join us for next month's featured article of the month podcast. Until then, cheers. Cheers.